Hey everybody, welcome back to another episode of D-Pads and Dice Rolls. My name is Greg and I am joined by, once again, Steve and Adam. Guys, how's it going? Good, good. Hi, hello. How are you? Yeah, it's been it's been so long since we've had in-person contact that uh, a lot of our social skills are apparently diminishing. But Adam, <laughs> you are going to have to, in particular, keep yours up because you're going to have to manage kiddos here in the not too distant future. And if it's virtually, then you're really going to have to be on your game. You're right about that. Yeah, I'll start practicing my, I don't know, talking skills. Well, yeah, apparently you have a lot of work to do, but I believe in you. We are back again with another episode this week. Uh, I'm I'm excited. It, I won't call it a niche because I'm not going to try to suggest that we're doing anything particularly well in this podcast, but we're having fun with it and that's all that matters. And I think a thing that we keep getting drawn back into pretty frequently is nostalgia, um, which is a fun little uh, jaunt for me. And that's, again, kind of what we're going to be talking about today. So we're doing uh, part one of our console generations. And this is going to cover, Adam, you keep me honest here, because I would say generation one and then the things before that. But technically, it's generations one, two, and three uh, of consoles. So I'm looking forward to getting into that conversation and walking down memory road, uh, specifically as it relates to the Nintendo, the original Nintendo. But before then, we've got some stuff to cover. So let's first talk about what we're playing. Mine's pretty easy. Uh, I'm still on that WoW game. And friend of the show, Sean O'Rourke, I have somehow roped him into playing as well. So we don't really have a chance to play together very often. But even just seeing him logged on is comfort enough to know that I'm not the only uber nerd. So uh, that's basically been taking most of my time. Steve, what about you? Uh, I'm back into Minecraft. I started up an 11 person realm server and currently I'm playing with three other people, my buddies, Caleb, Jordan, and Allie. But Jordan, I think is roping in like another three people to play with us. So we'll be up to seven, which means there's still four slots open for you guys. So if you're listening to this and you want to play Minecraft, then make sure you text message Steve's personal cell phone which is 602. That's not what I was saying. Don't actually call that as a disclaimer. So is that taking up most of your time then, Steve? Uh, Most of my gaming time, yeah. I uh, play it in the afternoon a little bit before uh, my son wakes up, and then I play it at night before I go to bed. Solid. Adam, how about you? Well, I had been playing some The Last of Us Part Two, but then I also decided to finally play Final Fantasy VI, which I think I mentioned last week, but that has been my main focus that game even though it's very old uh, is really good it still very much holds up so I, I think i'm in the last kind of third of the game and really enjoying it i've also been streaming yakuza 0 over on my twitch channel which has actually been a lot of fun i'm getting pretty close to the end of that game but if you're listening to this podcast and you want to come hang out with me in real time then you can find me on twitch.tv slash medium underscore quality. I usually stream on Saturdays during my daughter's nap time for a couple of hours, and it's pretty chill, so come hang out. Well, it definitely sounds like uh, we're all keeping busy. I am curious, Adam, did you stop The Last of Us 2 just because Final Fantasy took more of your attention? Or, I mean, what? how are you feeling about The Last of Us 2? I'm still pretty early in the game and so far i really really like it but it's a game that i can only play when amelia's asleep it's 
obviously got some difficult themes in it, but mainly because of the the violence and the kind of spookiness of certain parts of it. I've kind of only play at night, and as a result, I just haven't played it as much. That makes sense. The next section here, we've got some pretty interesting things going on in the news. Uh, we had Ubisoft forward. Do you guys say Ubisoft or Ubisoft? I say Ubisoft. Yeah, I say Ubi as well. Yeah, me too. Okay, well, we're all on the same page. So if you heard it here first, if you say Ubisoft, you're wrong. So in the Ubisoft forward event, um, I think I'll reveal our, our our hand here a little bit. So one, I didn't get a chance to watch it because I've been doing a horrible job of remembering that these are going on. But um, I actually haven't really had an interest hearing how your guys' responses were to it to actually go back and watch it. You guys were pretty underwhelmed by it. Is that fair to say? Oh, yeah. I, I watched it. And there were a couple of things that were vaguely interesting. You know, Watchdog Legions looked like it might be kind of fun. And that got a release date for October 29th of this year. Um, Assassin's Creed Valhalla. Uh, to me, it looked fun. But I know, Steve, you noticed uh, something in particular that they mentioned about the gameplay that was kind of a kind of a hard pass for you, right? Yeah. So in, I just so far I've played a little bit of Origins, but I played all of Odyssey and I loved that game. And so I was really excited about Valhalla. But one of the things that they had mentioned is that there's no automatic regeneration of your health. So throughout the game, you have to actually like scavenge and collect things to heal yourself and to fix up your armor. And that's just, I don't know, it's too cumbersome. There's, I just really want to focus, like the way that I play Assassin's Creed is I'm constantly like sneaking in the shadows. I'm not very powerful already. Like my health is really low because everything goes into stealth. So if I'm noticed, I get injured, but then I'm able to like hide in the bushes. But now I would have to actually leave the area, scavenge for health, come back and try it again and it's just gonna ruin the way that i play the game which it's called assassin's creed so it's kind of weird that it kind of hinders the whole stealth portion yeah i think i'm with you i i wouldn't put it in the hard past i think i will i, I feel pretty confident that i'll eventually play it but it might not be like a i certainly wouldn't pay 70 dollars for it if it ends up with all of these game price hikes i i would not do that but um, when it's on sale, I think I would probably eventually play it, but it's similar for me. I mean, I like to experience the story and I like to, um, to go a little bit more of the stealthy route as well. And, and just some of the things I'm seeing from the game have not, have not really been super appealing to me. So I'll, I'll see what the reviews say, but, um, in general, I think we realize there aren't really a lot of Ubisoft games that, that we play. Um, one of the other big ones was the air quotes reveal of Far Cry 6. Uh, wah, wah. It got leaked like before, but that's coming out in February 18th of 2021. Some other news items that that we thought were kind of relevant. The Sims is getting a competition based TV show. It's like a real, I think, it, I don't know if it's a reality TV show, but um, it's like a, it's like a game show type thing. I, this is strange to me that they would do this when the Sims has been out for 20 years. I mean, I, I don't know. I, it just doesn't seem i know that there's a huge following especially globally for it but it just seems weird like of all of the game franchises that this would be the one so it'll be interesting to see how that does um we also saw that ready player two is coming out in november which oh, is oh yeah very fast uh it will be the sequel to ready player one which i all three of us loved that book is that right Adam, I don't remember if you uh, 
Uh, screw you, Adam. I loved it. It is he has gotten so much hate. It's surprising to me. I mean, people basically the thing I've heard is people just don't think he's a very good writer, which I maybe I don't know. It's probably pretty subjective. Um, but I just thought he did such a good job of weaving that story together. So I'm I'm excited. I've heard that the other book he wrote was not very good, and I haven't even tried to read it. Have you read it, Steve? No, I so I rented it. I think it's called Armada. I rented yeah. it from the library and started reading it, but it just it wasn't the same style of book because mm. the original one was all about like gaming in general. Um, yeah. It's just like scratching that itch, and this one was more from my understanding of it was like some of those old school like 80s sci-fi style i don't know even if like it got space into, invaders influence, yeah right? yeah yeah but it seemed like it was less gaming and more like movies from those days and things oh, and okay. just things that i wasn't into so i have to go on record and say that i i did like ready player one i don't want to go into the hater category here i just wanted maybe a little more I don't know, world building out of it. It seemed like so much of the content was kind of a checklist of everyone's favorite 80s video game and movie references. And it's just like, it's such an interesting idea for a story. Uh, if Ready Player Two like builds on that world and that kind of post-apocalyptic kind of cyberpunk theme that it has going on, then then I'm I'm down. I mean, I for sure will read the book. Yeah, I mean, I, th I thought that was the whole point of it. I mean, he literally built out worlds by saying that every major gaming franchise had its own world and it's true you you did get to explore a few of those but i thought that i thought he actually did a good job of keeping the story on the rails of like staying focused and then bringing in these elements as needed and then even sprinkling on some of those details of like the big game so uh, but i having said that i will be honest that i i I'm entering into Ready Player Two. I will, I will, um, like pre-purchase it, but I'm entering it in with a very open hand. I don't have high or low expectations. Like I'm open to it being not very good, and I'm open to it being great or anywhere in between. I, I'm not really sure what to expect. I was actually wondering, does anyone know if Will Wheaton's going to be doing the audiobook for it? Friend of the show, Will Wheaton. You mean? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Best bud. Will, you did such a great job. Well, we'll see. We will see uh, in November when it comes out. Uh, last couple items here. Ninja, we talked about him, uh, Mixer crashing and burning, and he didn't go back to Twitch. He went to YouTube Gaming and he reached 150,000 concurrent viewers, which is, it's bonkers, but I'm not really, it'll be interesting to see over the long term how many he keeps. He probably will keep a majority of them because he's Ninja, but it wasn't terribly surprising that there'd be big numbers on the front end. Um, so we'll see sustainability wise what that looks like, but I think it's good for both platforms to have competition with one another so that they continue to iterate and improve. You have to keep in mind though, that he didn't really like hype up this stream. It was like, I think he, maybe he announced it on Twitter like an hour before he went live and then he went live and immediately people start flocking in. So like, if it turns out that this is where he's going to be kind of living, then I wouldn't be surprised to see those numbers stay fairly steady, that he could maybe help bolster the YouTube gaming community, which, you know, for the longest time has been a pretty distant 
second maybe in terms of uh, probably fair to say but then again every twitch streamer also has their video on demand on youtube and they always have pretty high counts so i don't know i think it'll be interesting i think my guess is streamers are pretty platform agnostic as a general rule so yeah it'll be good news for youtube gaming and it'll be good news for people who are interested in game streaming because it'll keep both platforms on their toes and twitch won't be able to rest on their laurels i've got a question about this um, did he only do one stream on YouTube gaming or is he actively like chosen this? I think this was just his first one. And I don't know that he's come out and said, here's my schedule. Here's what I'm playing. Okay. So, so my thought in this, I don't think he was actually like jumping to YouTube gaming. If he's only done one, I honestly think what he's doing is jumping on there to see the numbers, to have some sort of leverage as he's potentially meeting with youtube and twitch about trying to get um some sort of exclusive contract again like he did with mixer showing like hey it doesn't matter like yeah mixer was a bust but i can go to any of these big platforms and pull crazy numbers i just need a contract and i think that's like him showing like he already had data from twitch proving he could do it now just from one little youtube thing with barely announcing it he pulls like record numbers and I think it's honestly just him trying to get another contract. Yeah, I'm still waiting on my contract from Twitch. Just just waiting on that email. You didn't, they, I mean, you didn't get it? They they told me they sent it. Oh, I'll have to check my spam filter, but. Yeah, they probably spelled your name wrong. That happens all the time. Yeah. Last couple things here. D&D Beyond has a player app now, now available. Uh, Dice Rolling is coming soon to that. I, man, D&D beyond has been killing it on making digital gaming more accessible so um this will forever be in our new segment when they do things like this uh because we know that their friend of the show dnd beyond uh listens all the time and so way to go lastly the stadia connect was today uh and in general they are really leaning into the stadia um, MO where they are bringing games that came out a couple years ago onto their platform that you can play that you've probably already played and or beaten um, not a lot to really report there. So Google's not afraid to sell off or close down things if they're not doing well. So it'll be interesting to see over the next six months to two years if Stadia stays or if it iterates or or what. Uh, but they're not really rocking the boat with new announcements right now. So that's all the news. Uh, Adam, do you have any deals for us? Yeah, definitely. You've got some good deals this week. As always, there's a bunch of stuff that's on sale on Xbox this week. It's a lot of Ubisoft stuff. You said Ubisoft, though. You yeah, said you just Ubisoft. You flip-flopped. Oh, <laughs> man, you flip-flopper. Hoisted on my own petard. You wanted to be one of the cool kids. Yeah, typical politician. Wow. Also, good stuff on PS4. If you have waited for No Man's Sky, now's a good time to pick it up because it's on a, a pretty steep discount. That's a game that, when it came out, was was not great got some pretty terrible reviews uh but the team has been working on it and really like turned it into a game that is very much worth playing so if by chance you passed on it because the reviews were bad you know a year or two ago um, now might be a good time to check it out the epic game store free game of the week is torchlight 2 which is a personal favorite of mine it's kind of diablo-esque um great multiplayer dungeon crawl that i try to get people to play with me from time to time and no one ever does so hit me up on twitter let's let's play some torchlight listener 
You've never asked me before. I haven't? No. Well, you want to play Torchlight 2 sometime? No. Okay. That's just how it is sometimes. Yeah, that's free this week. Uh, also, we got a couple of bundles over on Humble Bundle. One of them is the Summer Adventure Games Bundle, which features quite a bit of the Telltale Adventure Game series, including some Walking Dead stuff, the Batman Adventure Game, uh, The Wolf Among Us. Well, the second one got announced. So if you are kind of interested in, in circling back around to that series, you can you can do so for a good deal. Uh, and there's a few other odds and ends. Oxenfree is on there, and, and that's kind of a cool indie adventure game. Also, there is a Warhammer 2020 bundle that has some Warhammer 40k stuff in it. And that's not really my wheelhouse, but I know that a lot of people really like those Warhammer games. Anyways, that's all for the deals. Do we have any uh, hot new releases coming up this week, Steve? We do. Um, I actually have releases from today all the way through July 31st. Today being the 16th of July, because I'm speaking from the future or the past, one of the two. So July 16th, we've got Super Hot Mind Control Delete. This originally was supposed to be DLC for the original game, but they ended up putting so much content in it that they decided to release it as a full game. But they also felt bad for the people that were going to get it as DLC. And so if you've purchased the first Super Hot, then you'll get this game for free. I thought that was pretty awesome of them. It's coming out on PC, Xbox One, PS4, and Stadia. So it looks like Stadia does get some new titles, but yeah, whatever. On July 17th, we've got Paper Mario, the Origami King, coming to Switch. This is the next in the line of Paper Mario games and involves this Origami King that's folding up the paper world. So Mario needs to go through and save the day. Also on July 17th for PS4, we've got Ghost of Tsushima, uh, which is an open world samurai game. And so far it's gotten pretty decent reviews. So definitely one to check out if you got a PS4. On the 21st, we have Rock of Ages 3 Make and Break. It's coming out on Stadia, Nintendo Switch, Xbox One, PS4, and PC. It's essentially multiplayer tower defense games. So you're building up your area while also attacking somebody else's area. And you have to like sort of balance between defending and attacking at the same time in order to be successful. On the 23rd, we've got Crisis Remastered coming out on the Switch, PC, Xbox One, and PS4. And now that I'm saying this, I'm really shocked that it's coming out on the Switch. Because from what I remember, Crisis is something that like graphically was ridiculous and none of my computers could ever handle it. So I don't know how the Switch is going to do this. It didn't stop them with The Witcher 3. Was that actually good on the Switch, though? I heard that The Witcher 3 port for Switch was, was pretty impressive, given the limitations of the hardware. Like, they actually got it to work pretty well. And I've seen a few screenshots, you know, I think a little bit of video, of Crisis running on Switch. And it looks really impressive. It, but it's it's not on the same level as the other consoles, right? It's like downgraded? Right. It's definitely a noticeable downgrade, but it's not so much of a downgrade that it's worth skipping. If the Nintendo Switch is your preferred way to play video games, you're not getting a bad experience playing Crisis on Switch, which is wild. Nice. Good to know. July 26th, we have a card game. It's SpongeBob Flux. So if you don't know about Flux, it it's a line or a series of different game or dang. 
So if you don't know about Flux, Andrew Looney, who used to be a NASA rocket scientist, he left his job there and started a game company with his wife, I think up in Seattle. And they started releasing a bunch of games. Flux is probably his most popular, and he's had all the themes that you can think of. There's been Monty Python, Doctor Who, Drinking Flux, Math Flux, Marvel Flux, like basically everything. And so now it looks like SpongeBob's thrown his hat into the ring. And this is a card game where you can like mix different intellectual properties together. Like you could have, I don't know, Spider-Man in your SpongeBob Flux claim if you wanted to. You could, but it would make it a little bit difficult. The way that the game works is you have these cards that they're goal cards and you have to have specific cards to reach those goals. And so if you have a SpongeBob goal card, only the SpongeBob cards are going to work for it. So you have to be careful on some of the mixing and matching. Got it. On July 28th, we've got Destroy All Humans, uh, which is finally coming back. I think the last time we saw it was maybe like the PS2 days, but it's coming out on PC, PS4, Xbox One, and what do you know, Stadia. I honestly am shocked because I did not see any of these games in the Kinect, so I don't know what they're doing. The uh, premise of this game is you're aliens and uh, you need to destroy all humans. Uh, you're harvesting the human DNA. You're trying to shut down the US government. It's a super fun game. And lastly, we talked about this before, back when the Xbox conference happened, the third party Xbox conference, not to be confused with the upcoming in a few days, first party Xbox conference. This is such a weird year. Oh yeah. But uh, Grounded is coming out on Xbox and PC and will be available on Game Pass on day one. And this is the one that I had said is essentially like Honey, I Shrunk the Kids in a video game. So I'm very stoked about that. And that's all I've got for you. Nice. Well, let's go ahead and jump into the topic for the week. Obviously, the hype for the upcoming next generation video game consoles is really starting to ramp up. And so what better time for us while everyone is looking ahead to the future of games to take a little walk down memory lane and look back at previous video game console generations. So for the next couple of weeks or months or I don't know how long it'll take us, but we're going to dedicate an episode to each of the console generations that we remember from our childhood. And of course, it's important to note here that talking about the history of video games as like a series of console generations is really only kind of one angle to look at video games through. It, it kind of ignores the rich lineage of arcade games and home computers and uh, even handheld games, which are some of my favorite. We'll probably talk a little bit about some key moments in the history, uh, but the conversation will be far from definitive. If you want more detailed information about the history of video games, you could check out Replay, The History of Video Games by Tristan Donovan, which is a really good book that covers a, a large swath of the video game history, uh, not just from a US-centric viewpoint. It also covers games around the world. The Ultimate History of Video Games by Stephen L. Kent, or even the Retronauts podcast, which is uh, one of my favorites. Without further ado, let's gloss over the first two console generations because none of us were born until the second half of the 1980s. The first generation of home video game consoles began in 1972 with the introduction of the Magnavox Odyssey, which was the world's first consumer home video game product. 
Uh, and it had a few competitors, including the really popular Atari Home Pong console, as well as a series of home video games by this leather goods company that turned into a toy manufacturer called Coleco or the Connecticut Leather Company. <laughs> Very interesting story, which we don't have time to go into, but they're also the people who brought us the Cabbage Patch Kid doll, if I remember correctly. Oh, that's crazy. Yeah. A wild time for children's toys and entertainment all around. Uh, in, in general, the the game of these first generation consoles were programmed into the console itself. So you couldn't really vary the gameplay other than maybe some slight modification of game modes. So like instead of playing ping pong or tennis, you could flip a switch on the console and, and play hockey instead. And it seemed like the goal of these first generation consoles was to take an arcade experience and try to bring it into the home. Uh, and that kind of typifies some of these early generations. But do you guys have any experience playing these first-gen video games? Because I sure don't. Nope. No, I don't either. Um, but I do want to say something about the first generation that I found fascinating when like reading up on the history. Nolan Bushnell, the guy who started Atari, had seen a demonstration of that Tennis for Two game and had the idea of like wanting to create a tennis-style game and so as he was hiring people onto Atari, he had one of the guys, I think his name was like Al Alcorn, program a tennis game as just like a test to see if he could actually like figure out programming for consoles. And he essentially invented Pong from this whole idea of tennis for two. And so there's like, there was legal battles between like uh, Magnavox, Odyssey and Atari for like a long time. Yeah, it was definitely kind of the Wild West in that first generation and even more so in the second generation actually because that was a big leap forward in the fact that it introduced cartridge-based games most of us when we think of a video game console we think of a box that we can have a bunch of games you know through physical media of some sort or, or downloads and and the second generation was kind of where that took root but also during that generation there was an explosion of options that you could buy uh, and a lot of it was companies that you wouldn't imagine very much like the Connecticut Leather Company saw this opportunity to a slice of market share. Consoles like the Bally Astrocade, which is from the same people who owned all of those Bally Total Fitness facilities, so like gyms that you could go to in your neighborhood and work out or, I don't know, play racquetball. ColecoVision came out in the second generation. The Magnavox Odyssey 2 in television, Vectrex, the penultimate second-gen console was the Atari 2600, and, and later their souped-up Atari 5200, and like a dozen other consoles that none of us have ever played, but were in department stores all over the place. One of the things that's really important to remember about that particular time is that there was a, a flooding of the market with all of these different products and a lot of Consumers are really confused about it. And that's what ended up leading to the video game crash of 1983, which was mostly a North American event. Big shout out to the E.T. game that apparently uh, got blamed for this whole thing. Yeah, you guys know that story, right? And then like the landfill that supposedly had a dumped them all in. Yeah. And then they found the landfill. Yeah. Yeah, there's a really great 
documentary that was on Netflix, may still be there. I, I don't know, but a uh, documentary about that game and them trying to find where it was. And it's great story. You kind of feel sorry for the guy who programmed E.T. because he was a really talented of the time software engineer. You know, he had made this really popular game. I think it was Yars Revenge. That was a great game for the time. Uh, and then they're like, okay, we need you to make this E.T. game in like three months. So good luck. And he made it and everybody hated it and blames him for this crash, which was really not his fault, but rather just market forces coming to bear uh, in the early to mid 80s in the US. And of course, by the end of that period, a lot of the American consoles, the people who had been producing those were, were, were done. It just didn't seem like a market that was stable enough to enter into. And so if not for you know a couple of really big Japanese companies, that would have been the end of video games as we know it for potentially years. So that brings us to the third console generation, which most people just refer to as the 8-bit generation. Uh, kicked off in Japan in the early to mid 80s. Uh, and by the end of this period, there were really only two key players in the industry. That was Nintendo with their Nintendo Entertainment System and Sega with the Sega Master System, which was far less popular, but still managed to, to move enough units to, to keep that market share. So we were all born during this console generation. I know I certainly have some really fond memories of these games. What about you guys? What are, what are some of your favorite memories from the 8-bit console generation? I was thinking back at some of the games, and there are three that really stood out to me. The original Super Mario Bros, Duck Hunt, and Punch-Out. And specifically for those three, Super Mario Bros, I started off by playing it like an arcade version of it whenever I'd go into the uh, pediatrician. And it was the first like actual arcade-style game I had played, but then ended up actually playing it on the NES too, which that was just... It was mind-boggling that I could play games that were available at the arcade, but at home. I just couldn't even comprehend how that was possible. Duck Hunt, the fact that like you could actually like use this little laser device and shoot things on the screen and somehow like the TV or the console knew that you had just shot the duck on the screen also blew my mind. And I thought like that was gonna be the future and that every single console after that, that all the games were gonna be like that, which I found out that's not true at all. <laughs> that was mind-blowing. And it was also weird that there was only, I think, like two or three games that took advantage of that. Yeah. Maybe I'm wrong. There wasn't many. Yeah. I don't I don't know if just people couldn't figure it out or maybe they just didn't think a lot of people had the actual guns themselves and they couldn't figure out a good pricing model to like bundle it or what. But yeah. Yeah. I, I think you're actually onto something there because that Nintendo zapper device was bundled with a bunch of nintendo systems in the u.s as a way to get units into toy stores and um i don't remember where i was going with that <laughs> <laughs> so the last one that i had on my list was punch out and the thing that i really liked about that is it it wasn't mashing a bunch of buttons and maybe getting lucky and winning like you had to actually figure out each thing was almost like a puzzle where it's like this thing that you're facing, this fighter that you're going against has specific moves that they do in different patterns. And you had to like slowly learn those patterns in order to defeat each one. 
And just like that feeling was just so great. And it kind of extended out in the future into uh, Shadows of the Colossus on PS2 did that same style of thing where you're only fighting these like specific people, bosses, boxers, whatever. And um, you're you're just trying to solve like the puzzle of how to defeat this one entity. It's interesting that the core gameplay mechanic can be so pure and good that it's still fun multiple generations later. I, I would never have drawn a connection between a game like Punch-Out and Shadow of the Colossus because, <laughs> you know, they don't appear to be related in the slightest, but I think you're right. And I think that's probably something for me that I would kind of pin to the 8-bit generation is where you start to see the experimentation in the video game medium start to yield these pure mechanics of fun. Because up until this time, the people who are making these games are really just trying to recreate arcade experiences and a game like Punch-Out, which I guess still started as an arcade game, stumbled onto something that's like transcendent in a way. Yeah, I think that that's a notable thing about, in particular, the regular, the original Nintendo. There was a lot of very, very difficult games. I remember playing Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, which is notoriously difficult. Specifically, there's a water level. Some of these could just be bad programming or bad design, but there were these like seaweed things attached to walls that would electrocute you and you didn't have much health. And so I was never able to beat that, but I loved the Ninja Turtles so much that I played it a ton. You had a Superman game that was like very opaque. It wasn't ever really clear to me what you were supposed to do. And I played that one a ton. I was never able to figure that out. Even the original Zelda, the, the the Home Alone game, if you guys have heard about that one, where I only recently found out from a speedrunning competition that the way you beat that game is you just survive for 20 minutes and then you, you beat the game and the game's over. Uh, and I never was able to survive that long in the game to actually beat it. And then Back to the Future 2 and 3 was also another one that was like, I don't even know what's going on here. But I would say like the ones that had the most nostalgic memories for me were there's a game called Ghoul School that was really fun. You are this sort of outcast and your school is taken over by demons and monsters and stuff. And the like star cheerleader, it's it's it would not probably hold up to today's cultural standards. But, you know, you're supposed to be the hero and save her. She was taken but throughout the game, as you progress through the school, you can get additional weapons and additional footgear. So like there's certain areas that you can't pass, but then you find these like spring shoes and you can jump over them. And there's like bosses throughout. I loved it. It was a really good game. And then, I mean, I had a lot of fun with a lot of the Disney games. So the Chip and Dale games, DuckTales, it's not Disney, but the Tiny Toons games I enjoyed. I just I have a lot of really good memories with the original Nintendo console. And going through the list of games, I realized I played a lot of those games. I didn't beat very many, but I played a lot. Yeah, looking back on the 8-bit console generation, I actually didn't play very many of these games at all. I didn't have a Nintendo growing up. I did have an Atari 2600, but we didn't have a ton of money. So we some of them I played at friend's house. In fact, probably my first memory of a video game ever is the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles game that you mentioned. That game has a, a killer soundtrack. Oh, yeah, it was great. I thought the visuals were really cool, too. I mean, it looked a little different. Like the style was sort of like the comic book style that the show was trying to go for. 
it definitely capitalized on the popularity of the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles at the time because that was a huge craze. I I was obsessed with the with the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles when I was like four or five. Oh yeah. When I first saw this game, I think my uncle had a copy of this game and and I was watching him play it and and I just thought it was so cool and I really really wanted to play this game and I was like afraid for whatever reason. I didn't want to be like hey, can, can I have a turn? So I, I waited and I watched him for a really long time. And then he, he finally turned and asked me if I wanted to play the game. And I was so excited. I was like, yes, I am ready. And right at that moment, my mom walks in and she's like, all right, it's time to go. And me being the passive child that I was, like I just nodded. Oh gosh, I remember walking down the hall of my grandparents' house and, and like starting to sob. And my mom had no idea what was going on. And she's like, why are you sad? And I was like, I'm fine. Oh, and I just, I cried all the way home. And that was, that was Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles for me. And you said you were 18? Yeah. Yeah. It was last week. Yeah. Too soon. Too soon. So that started your curiosity and affinity towards games. Like, would you say that, that was a pretty fundamental memory for you or foundational maybe? It certainly began the whole process of me experiencing sadness and video games side by side. No, I would say that probably before that, like watching my dad play Atari games before I could even really hold a controller. I think the sounds of video games, which, you know, in these early eras was very distinctive. You know, nowadays we have full recorded symphonic pieces, but at the time, you know, you have programmers working within the limitations of chips on these early, you know, arcade boards and moving on to FM synthesis. And there's a distinctive kind of chip tune is what we call it now, I guess, but this sort of electronic sound to these old games that is so iconic, so distinctive. That's always been stuck in my head, probably even before I can remember. It's interesting to me the lineage of video game music from this era because a lot of those programmers were listening to progressive rock from the 70s and you can hear the influences of of 70s era progressive rock in 8-bit video games. Hmm. And that's a weird way that the things that I love are kind of tied together because I'm a big music guy as, as well. Yeah, I think that's interesting that it wasn't as prominent or maybe it just wasn't at like the forefront of my mind but looking back that's a huge part of it like the the way that the music had to be crafted gave a lot of character to those games that are not present in games anymore and so yeah i mean a lot of these games did have pretty iconic soundtracks i i still remember in the nintendo game dick tracy if you ever played that when you die I remember I can like, like it's a YouTube video in my head. I can play it in my head. It like the music slows down and like, it's, there are just some iconic moments like that. Or um, when you die in Super Mario, I mean, there's something about like these, these unexpected moments and the music cues that go with them, because usually rage also (laughs) accompanies those moments uh, that really sear themselves in your brain. Part of the creativity of the music from this era is the fact that those people were working within the limitations of the technology and the hardware that was available to them. Totally. There are no limitations now. Any Anything that you can imagine musically, you can put into a video game. And that's awesome, but also... Boring? Well, not boring, 
but I would say that limitations breed creativity. I would say that Mega Man 2 is a game that I don't remember playing a lot, but I remember that soundtrack as being just extraordinary. Not having a Nintendo of my own, I would often go out in my backyard and like pretend to be Mega Man or pretend to be a Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle. You know, those songs were in my head uh, as best I could remember them as a, you know, five or six year old. Yeah, I remember because our Nintendo, it was bundled with the gun. There was a cartoon that I cannot remember the name of it, but there was a, it was like a Nintendo Adventure. Maybe that's what it was called. Nintendo Adventures cartoon or something where the main character had the gun and then he had a Nintendo controller for as like a belt buckle. Yes. And do you remember that? Yeah. Captain N. That's what it was. I loved that show as a kid and I would always try to emulate it, but the cords would always get in the way. I wonder what if there's an equivalent sort of promotion of imagination for kids today. I don't know what the difference would be, but I mean, I feel like it's so easy to play games kind of whenever and wherever that I wonder if that has an impact on, well, I don't need to pretend to play Fortnite. I just, I can play it on my dad's phone because I can't use the TV right now or whatever. I don't know. It might be nothing to that. Maybe kids still, you still see Fortnite toys uh, and stuff like that at, at Target, but um, maybe it's just the, the nostalgia talking. Well, I don't know if, if you guys had this experience, but I definitely remember my parents being kind of skeptical about purchasing video games. You know, even though my dad loved to play Atari, like I think they were nervous about letting me play video games without any kind of strict limitations. I don't get the sense that, well, the kids whose parents told them they couldn't play video games have gone on to have kids. And I don't know that they're necessarily as skeptical of, of that as a, an okay way to spend a Saturday afternoon or something. Well, I think, yeah, I mean, I was in the same boat. I don't remember the details of why we we did own a majority of those Nintendo games that I played. I think I might have gotten them as hand-me-downs from my cousins, but all the future console generations, up until I started getting an allowance, we did not purchase like any games. I didn't own any games of any consoles other than the ones that came with them. It was always, I rented games. We would go to like Hollywood Video or Blockbuster and I'd rent a game for a weekend. But I think that was just because my mom realized that I would play these games and beat them in a few days. And then she just spent this money, however much they were then on it. And it was like ours as opposed to just renting it for a fraction of the cost for a weekend. And then if I wanted to play it again the next weekend or whatever, then I, I could. But yeah, there's not really an option to do that anymore. Yeah, that's an interesting note because there are quite a few video games that got released in America more difficult than the original Japanese version of the game to respond to the rental market. They would make games like, I want to say Castlevania might be an example of this. I should have looked up a list, but there are a bunch of different games that were made more difficult so that you couldn't beat it in a weekend to encourage people to actually buy and own those games because renting video games wasn't as much of a thing in Japan. I think there were maybe regulations on that. That's interesting. Of course, they did go on to have like the Famicom disc system where you could pay $2 to rewrite your uh, your Nintendo disc. That's crazy. Steve, did your parents let you play video games whenever? Uh, yeah, I, I don't feel like, oh, shoot. I'd probably have to actually ask them how often I played, but I didn't feel like I was constantly playing them. But I definitely think like as an only child, having video games was crucial for them. So I wasn't constantly bothering them asking <laughs> to play like board games and different things like 
is probably like a really easy tool. They were the ones that introduced me to video games. Uh, I remember my dad was working for like a, I don't know if it was a projection company or what, but he brought home a projector and like a computer for it. And we would play like centipede and asteroids and things like on our wall in our home. That's like what started all up. And then when I was four, they got me the Genesis. And it, I mean, from there on, like I had a con like I had made sure that I had one of the consoles from each generation. And what I would do is I would just like trade in all the things that I had from the old generation in order to afford the new console and like one or two games. Yes. I'm excited for our Genesis conversation because I feel like not many people had them. Yeah, I did. I had one. So I did throw out on my uh, medium quality Facebook page a question asking if anybody uh, had a favorite memory or a favorite game from the 8-bit console generation. And I, I got a response from the person who I'm guessing is probably our, our most faithful listener. Will Wheaton. Well, second to Will Wheaton. I wasn't counting him because... It's given. Know, yeah, that's obvious. But David Hunt said that his strongest memory of the NES is how mad he would get at the stupid dog and duck hunt. Yes. And he included the uh, the gif of that dog coming up over the grass and laughing. Like even seeing the gif now just fills me with absolute rage. <laughs> I mean, I was going to say, I wonder how many of us tried to shoot the dog. Um, it's. I don't think that's the appropriate question. I think the question is, how long did it take for all of us until we tried to shoot the dog? Because it certainly was rage inducing. <laughs> yeah, for sure. As was alluded to, we will definitely be continuing this conversation in coming weeks. So if you have managed to listen this far into the podcast and you have a favorite game or a favorite memory from the 16-bit console generation, which will be our, our next one. So maybe a favorite SNES game, Sega Genesis game, reach out to us either email or anchor page or find me on Twitter or medium quality on Facebook. I kind of want to end with a kind of a big question. What does the 8-bit console generation mean to you? Does this console generation on the whole have a a strong place in your memory? Does it mean something to you? Is it is it nostalgic? I mean, Steve, you can go first. Yours is going to be quicker. <laughs> yeah, it honestly doesn't mean anything to me, probably because I was born a little bit after you guys and like my all of my memories were from the next generation. Yeah, for me, it was huge. It was it was the start of my introduction to video games. So it's pretty it's a pretty foundational system for me in terms of why I am the way I am today and, and the type of games that I like. And it's very nostalgic. For me, the Nintendo Entertainment System represents like, I don't know, a, a separation of classes. I had a lot of friends who had Nintendos, but I never had one, and I just thought that that meant I was poor and we couldn't afford it, and so I always wanted to play these games and never did. And since then, I've, I've gone back to rediscover some of those games, and it's cool to see the roots of games that I actually really, really love kind of in this infancy. For me, the 8-bit console generation is like where the flower of the medium begins to blossom right? The first and second generations may have been foundational. It may have been planting the seed and taking root. This is where gameplay and creativity and ideas start to blossom into something really cool. And then it only went on from there to be one of my favorite things in the whole world. Like I just think video games are cool or else I wouldn't be sitting here talking with you guys about video games because that's 
a weird way to spend an afternoon if you don't like video games. Makes a lot of sense. Well, that's going to do it for this episode. Greg, would you like to close us out? Yes, certainly. Uh, So as Adam said, if you want to try and get a hold of us, if you have some specific 8-bit generation memories or the first or second generation even, maybe, Adam, you've been a little um, hesitant to to push this because we're not necessarily under the medium quality umbrella, but that is, that's a good place. If you're on Facebook, you should for sure follow medium quality Adam's pseudonym that he's been doing for a long time. Follow him on YouTube. He's got a lot of good content on there. That's a pretty good way to to communicate with us. You can also communicate with us through our anchor page. Uh, We'd love to hear from you. So thanks a lot for listening to this episode of D pads and dice rolls. I'm Greg with Steve and Adam, and we will see you guys next time. Bye. Later skaters. Thank you.